0: That when when your conscience becomes callous, there's just nothing off the table. There's nothing that you won't do to satisfy the lust of the flesh. And this is what Paul says the world is like. And this is what Paul says we as believers used to be. But now we go to point two, who we are now. Point number two, who we are. The most important verse for understanding this morning's text is verse 17. I've kind of got ahead of verse 17 in order to dig in in verses 18 through 19, but let's go back to verse 17. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk, and if you remember we said from earlier in Ephesians, walk is just a way to say live. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Simply put, friends, what what Paul is saying here is, hey, if you're a Christian, now you need to live like it. There has to be some sort of change in your life. You may be wondering why Paul has to say this in the first place. I mean, if you become a Christian, if Jesus really does save you, if his spirit really does indwell your heart, won't there be a change automatically? And the answer to that question is yes, yes, there should be some sort of automatic real life change. But life is a spectrum and people live in different places. Some people have very dramatic conversion stories. Some people change so slowly over the course of a decade, it's almost imperceptible until like you haven't seen that person in 10 years and then you go up and you talk to them and it's like, dude, you have really grown in Christ. That's amazing. But everybody has their own experience, but there is some change that should take place initially. And what I love about Paul is that he's a good pastor, which means that he not only understands the intricacies of the gospel, but he also understands the intricacies of the human heart and experience. And so Paul knows that so many of these Christians in Ephesus, they lived for so long in the muck in the mire of their pagan religion. They lived for so long in their darkened understanding, in their ignorance, in their futility of mind. Their lives were lived out with a hardened conscience for so long that he understands that there's probably still a lot of junk built up in there from their experience in the world, even if Jesus has made them new. One easy way to understand this reality is to think about the psychological phenomenon of institutionalization, right? So institutionalization, if you think about somebody who's been to prison for a long time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that person has been fully immersed in the penitentiary lifestyle for that time, right? He walks a certain way, talks a certain way, thinks a certain way. His conscience has been calibrated to a certain kind of prison morality and ethic Now, if you take that man and you put him back in the free world and you take him out of the institution, a real change has taken place. In a very real way, he is now a free man. But anybody who's ever been institutionalized before will tell you that they have to now learn how to live in their freedom, right? That means that they don't have to always be looking over their shoulder. They can relax and have a good night's sleep. They can't respond to perceived disrespect with aggression and physical violence. Maybe they just have to learn how to use the internet. You know, They haven't seen a smartphone before. Any social worker uh, who's worked with somebody who has been institutionalized will tell you that they spend most of their time with that person saying, you must no longer live like a prisoner. You must now live like a free man. You must put off the mindset of a prisoner and put, off, put on the mindset of a man who is free. And that is what Paul is telling these Christians in Ephesus who have been converted from their Gentile ways. So look at verses 20 through, 22 through 24. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So there is a sense in which being saved by Christ will automatically produce real and lasting change in life. But there's also a reality that says that we must work hard to bear the fruit of repentance in our life. We have to put off the old and put on the new. So hey, if you're into marking up your Bibles, I would just go ahead and go to verse 22 and circle or underline or put a star around put off and then another one around put on in verse 24 so that when you come back to these verses you understand kind of the heart of what Paul is teaching them here. One of the best illustrations uh, that I've heard to describe this phenomenon is not, it's been a while since I've heard it, so I'm probably gonna butcher it, but do stay with me. It's, it's, think about a bucket that's been used for gardening purposes, right? And if you use a bucket and you fill it with dirt over and over again for you know years and years and years, what begins to happen is like, there's a a layer of dirt that becomes compacted at the bottom of the bucket, right? And it becomes hard like cement. You know, it's wet and then it sits in the sun and then after a couple years, it's just stuck at the bottom. Sometimes when you see that, you just throw the bucket away because there's just so much compacted down there in the bottom, right? Well, us before Jesus saved us, we're like that bucket and we have a bunch of other junk in us. And Jesus comes and he dumps us out and all the dirt and all the junk goes on the ground. But that bottom layer is like cement there. And he pours his living water into us, like a hose in the bucket. And as the water goes in and it fills the bucket up, you can see that the water is not clean, right? It's turbid. There's a lot of dirt still left there in that bucket. And it begins to overflow. And in time, the dirty water goes out and the clean water comes up. And pretty soon, all the water that comes out seems to be pretty clean. But that bottom layer of junk is still there. Right, and pretty soon the water will soften the very top portion of that layer. And then maybe a chunk will break off, and then another chunk, and then more. And slowly over time, the water breaks that up. Well, in the same way, friends, we have a lot of junk still living in our flesh, living in our hearts from our time that we spent in the world. And there may be long seasons where we don't see any of that junk coming out of our hearts because sanctification is real and we're really making progress with the Lord. But then something will come up and you'll go, man, I didn't think that that was in there. But it is. And this is actually compounded by the fact that we too easily continue to consume junk from the world, which only compounds that effect. But moving on from that, what I thought was a pretty good illustration that could have been delivered a little bit better. We have to remember that on one level, all of the working out, all of the getting that junk out of our hearts and minds, it is accomplished by God. But here, in his advice that he's giving to the Ephesians, Paul doesn't say, hey guys, God's gonna take care of that. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about putting off and putting on. No, he says, you need to be actively pursuing the fruits of righteousness. You need to actively be mortifying your flesh and putting your sin to death. You need to be putting your hand to the plow for this labor. But that doesn't mean that God's not doing it. Right? Do you remember what we saw in, in Exodus? Right, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, in the same way, God will clean our hearts, and we must clean our hearts, and he will empower us to do so. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks, maybe next several months together as we walk through the rest of the book of Ephesians, putting off, putting on, and the renewal of our minds. But before we wrap up this morning, I just want to focus with one main point of application. Just one main point of application. Verses 20 and 21. Let's just go there and read it. Talking about the ways of the world and the the darkened mind and the hard heart and the, the callous conscience. After that, Paul says, but... And verse 20, that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. If you remember, this letter was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, a church that he himself planted, but it probably would have been circulated to other smaller churches in the area. And so Paul very wisely assumes that there is a possibility that somebody who is listening to this letter being read aloud that person may have learned of a different Jesus. That person may have learned of Christ in an incorrect way. They may have learned about a Jesus who doesn't tell them to put off their deceitful desires, who actually tells them to embrace their deceitful desires. They may have heard about a Jesus that doesn't call them to mortify the flesh or put to death corrupt passions. And Paul says, hey, that's not the way we learn Christ. And this, this phenomenon that somebody would come and teach about a Jesus who doesn't, yeah, a Jesus that's really not the Jesus of the Bible at all, it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine because people are still doing that today. I mean, probably right now, somewhere in this city, somebody is teaching this kind of Jesus. A Jesus that doesn't call you to put off the old and to put on the new. And oftentimes when, when there is a teaching about Jesus that, teaches you to put off the old and put on the new, it's really more like behavior modification, right? That could be a more conservative variety, go to church, pay your tithe, read your Bibles, do your prayers, fasting, care, right? Or it could be a more liberal variety, but it's still the same thing. It's, it's, it's an outward change, but not an inward sinful reality change. One teaching that is growing in popularity in the Western church has to do with homosexuality, that little feeling that you get when you even mention homosexuality from the pulpit and like the whole room just gets like 20% more tense, right? That tells you kind of where we are as a nation and as a culture and thinking about sexuality, particularly this main issue that I think has been brought to the church's front door. But one of the main teacher teachings about homosexuality that is actually growing up in people who call themselves Christians in the Christian church is this idea that you don't have to actually mortify homosexual desires you merely need to not have homosexual relationships this is a very common teaching in many christian circles and friends it's just not in line with what we see here in god's word right what the gospel that we see here in the book of ephesians says that not only is it wrong to steal but it's also wrong to be greedy and to desire to steal The gospel that we see here says that not only is lying sinful, but whatever leads you to want to deceive somebody is also sinful itself. It says that sexually immoral deeds are wrong, and the thoughts and desires that lead to such actions must also be put to death. And this idea is right in line with what Jesus teaches when he says that not only is murder bad, but the hate that you feel in your heart towards your brother that would lead you to kill him, is also sin. That says not only is adultery sinful, but also the lust you feel for that other person, that is wrong as well. It's very, very important that we think well about these things. If you'll notice in verse 18, Paul talks about the ignorance that is in the Gentiles, and then he contrasts that with the way he contrasts that with the way that he taught the Ephesians, and he says the way that you have learned Christ, right? So as Christians in the church, we're always in a process of learning about the gospel, about who God is, about who we are, and about what that means for our lives. Now, if you listen to the world futility in thinking, darkened in their understanding, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous conscience, and if you learn from them about how you should approach putting sin to death, you're gonna end up really confused. But if you listen to the way that Paul is teaching Christ, if you listen to the way that Peter is teaching Christ, if you listen to the way that Jesus himself is teaching you about what he calls you to do and be as a Christian, friends, you will be on solid ground. So I want to warn you, to be very careful and to be clear in your thinking and to pursue clarity in your thinking about these things because they really, really matter. There's a way of thinking that is more in line. There's a way of thinking about Jesus that is more in line with the ignorance of this world than the gospel we find here in the book of Ephesians. To believe in a false Jesus, a Jesus that cannot save, is to still be lost, and it's to be separated from God. So I think we would all do well here to just stop and to examine our own selves this morning, right? Let's just let God's word search our hearts and tell us the truth about what we may find there. So I've got some questions I want to ask, just pulled directly from the text. Question number one. Am I callous? Am I callous? What I mean to ask for this is, do I feel the conviction of sin? Has my conscience grown numb? Right? And that could express itself in any number of different ways. Is is pornography just the new normal in your life? Is that something that at one time bothered you ate you up, you would cry about it, you would confess it, you got an accountability partner, but you just kept going and kept going and kept going and now you just don't even notice it. You just don't even feel different. You have no problem maybe even sitting here this morning listening to me preach. Yeah, amen, you're listening, you love it. Sunday school, great. Wednesday night, fantastic. And then maybe at night before you go to bed, you go and watch porn. That's what I'm talking about. Does God's word still affect me? That's the kind of question you need to be asking. Does the spirit convict me? Am I open, open to being changed by God's truth? And if my conscience is callous, what does that mean for my spiritual life? Second question. What am I greedy for? What am I greedy for? Paul says that unbelievers are greedy for sin. But you have to know that all of us are greedy for something. Something. We are all built to crave, to desire, to search for, to hunger, to thirst, to pursue. That's how God made us so that ultimately we would hunger for him and thirst for him and pursue him, but we're all meant to be greedy for something. So in contrast to the world that's greedy for sin, we as believers should be greedy for the things of God. We should be hungry for more of the love of Christ We should have a hankering for more of the holiness that comes along with following God. We should want more knowledge of the holy. We should want more fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and not treat it as something we just kind of have to do at some point throughout the week. As believers, we should be greedy for the things of heaven and our greed should never be satisfied until we get there. So, what are you greedy for? Question number three, am I renewing my mind? Am I renewing my mind? You know, Christians are free to have differing opinions about like a thousand different things, right? So uh, the morality of automation in the workplace, the new tax code that's coming up in Decatur, even things like how justice, which we all agree on, should play itself out in public morality, We're free to disagree about these things. But one of the things that we just can't disagree on because we just can't be ignorant of are these basic truths about what it means to follow Christ, to be in his likeness, as Paul says, and to pursue righteousness and holiness in him. So are you thinking well about these things? What are you doing to be constantly renewed in your mind? Are you in God's word regularly? Are you gathering with the saints? so that they can sharpen you, right, in fellowship? So are you sitting under the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word? Are you committing yourself to a local body who will help you to form your thoughts after the thoughts of Christ? Are you praying and seeking the influence of the spirit in your life? Are you just reading good books? Hey, you guys know that we have a book stall? It's right there. We pick good books on purpose to help you renew your mind through careful thinking. They're not the Bible, and they're not 100% correct, but they're overall really good and helpful, we think. Next question. Am I actively putting off sin and putting on righteousness? Like, we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven, right? Like, we, I don't need to teach a class on that. We all understand that we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. But the question I think you should ask yourself is this. Is my life marked by, in some way, I know that there's going to be highs and lows and peaks and valleys in different seasons. Sanctification is going to be going great here and maybe not so great in this other time. But can I say that overall my life is marked by putting off sin and putting on righteousness? Just, just maybe think like, when was the last time that I repented of something? when was the last time I heard a sermon or read the Bible or prayed or like a brother or sister confronted me with something and I said, oh, I think, yeah, I think that's right. I have been in sin. Lord, please forgive me. Brother or sister, please forgive me. I repent in the dust and now I'm going to pursue righteousness in this area. And finally, the most important question you can ask yourself which I think all of these questions have been leading up to is this. Do I really know Jesus? Am I really saved? You see, one of the problems that we encounter in the Christian South, or maybe soon to be post-Christian South, I don't know, but one of the problems we encounter like in the Bible Belt is that we expect so many people who don't know Jesus to live like Jesus is real. We expect them to walk in a newness of life when in fact there is no newness of life in them. You probably know somebody that you're just wishing they would stop doing this and that they would start doing this and you're trying to help them do that in every way you possibly can. And maybe one of the things you just haven't considered is that they can't walk in newness of life because there is no life in them. They don't know Jesus. They may go to church. They may feed the poor. They can probably recite scripture to you. That doesn't mean that you know Jesus. Friends, this is something that every person in this room has to ask themselves before they die. Preferably sooner rather than later and be prepared to give themselves an honest answer about. Do I really know Jesus? Is my conscience convicting me of sin? Do I care about righteousness? Am I doing any of these things that Paul says I should be doing as a Christian? The gospel is not just that Jesus saves us from hell, although he certainly does do that. The gospel goes further than that and says he also makes us new. He makes us more like himself. And if there's no evidence that that's happening in your life, friend, you probably don't know Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus is such a kind and patient and gentle savior. He's not just gonna scold you for living in hypocrisy and disobedience. He's going to call you to himself even right now, even here, today. And he's gonna say, you don't have to live like that anymore. You can can have me. You can have the life that I offer you. You don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to walk in ignorance. Your heart doesn't have to be hard. It can be soft. Your conscience doesn't have to be dead. It can come alive. I can make you like me if you have any questions about what it means to do that, to follow Jesus in that way, well, I'd encourage you just to find really anybody who's a member of this church or come up and talk to me afterwards or some elder and we can help you to think better about that. There's probably no better way to end the sermon than to just read Jesus' words about what he can do for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we have experienced life apart from your Son, Jesus, and if we're being honest, we know it's just not worth living. So we pray that you would give us something better. We pray that Uh, you would give us clarity in what it means to follow your Son, Jesus. We pray that you would help us to walk in the newness of life that you've given us. And we pray this by the power of the Spirit, in the holy name of your Son, Jesus, and to your glory. Amen.